Red Flag Radio, we record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Rose Ward, and this is a revolutionary socialist podcast. Um, we talk about politics and history and theory and activism and all sorts of things that are going on in the world and have happened in history, and um, really encouraging people to share the uh, episodes that they like around, um, and if you enjoy the discussion on this episode, please share it with your friends, share it on social media. And we know that often this podcast, well, we, uh, we have some anecdotal evidence from at least a few people that this is a place where sometimes people are grappling with socialist ideas for the first time and we, me and Liam, get very excited about mm. that. So um, everything, even um, little sharing on your social media to get more people's ears around socialism um, we think is really important. So appreciate that. Appreciate our supporters at patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast to find us and give us a couple of dollars a month if you can. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, we'd really appreciate that um, as well. So thanks to everyone who does that and uh, keep doing that. And uh, if you can contribute as well, much appreciated. Today is a topic that um, was discussed at the recent Marxism conference and we're following up the conference. It was such a fantastic event um, and hopefully you were there too if you weren't. There's always Marxism 2022 and there's socialism in Sydney in September this year and we um, will probably be having some similar discussions there so you're still welcome to come along. One of the discussions that attracted a lot of attention and was discussed um, in the breaks and people kind of raving about their favourite discussion was uh, with Jamil, who's our guest today, about the prospect of hothouse earth and basically can we survive on this planet in the future? Um, yeah, pretty big question, really. So we're very excited to have Jamil uh, mm. on the podcast, a socialist activist, teacher unionist. He says he's a fan of the podcast. I don't know, maybe everyone <laughs> says that. Uh, but welcome, Jamil. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Roz. It's a real treat being on my favourite podcast. <laughs> um, so I guess, I mean, the end of every Red Flag Radio episode, we say you're listening to Red Flag Radio, we have a world to win um, and we fight for the world and we fight for humanity but this question of like what kind of world are we fighting for what the world is going to look like in the future and all of the discussion that's been much more prominent in the last few years around the kind of tipping points of environmental destruction what um yeah you know like what kind of state will the world be in what would socialism look like in a hot house earth this is what we're discussing but let's start by how come you have been so interested in this topic Okay. Apart from the existential crisis that we all have mm. from time to time. Yeah. I mean, we ha all have personal drivers as well, even if, you know, our vision is large and we want to fight for a free world. And it's a heavy topic. And I promise to um, <laughs> what I wanted to do is try to find a way to inject some revolutionary hope into it. And 
my experience as a high school teacher really motivated me to try to find that. We've got an entire generation that sees the system and society at large putting profits, short-term profits above their future. And this is quite self-evident within schools. Um, and you see it fluctuating in many students between this climate anxiety and despair and then forms of individual or collective rage. And we may have seen snippets of it. So um, my first year of teaching, I regrettably told in the year seven class, this is uh, Eastern Suburbs, Melbourne, uh, that I said to the class, it's up to your generation to solve the climate crisis. And a 13-year-old female student stands up and goes, you're a hypocrite. What are you doing about it? I'm sick of adults telling me this. And a lot like uh, examples like this come up at school and we can see the collective um, actions of climate strikers as well that is the probably the greatest expression of it. But then on the flip side, um, uh, the Australian Psychological Foundation found that uh, 80% of students experience climate anxiety and this often falls into just, just saying that there's no hope. And I've a number of times had students ask me if we fail to meet the um, carbon budgets or, or the um, targets of 2030, it might, is my future ruined? Or just students just blatantly saying there's no hope. And what do you say to that as well? So I started digging through science papers and environmental lefts, left and what they're writing and I could not find one paper that beyond the tipping points thought that uh, we had any hope and it was just catastrophism. Um, so I set myself on a little mission to find some answers that contradicted that. Mm. Yeah, I think you've kind of summed up what a lot of people feel like. doesn't matter if you're young or old, but that idea that um, seems very – I mean, everyone hears about the targets for carbon emission reductions and thinks this is just ne like literally never going to happen. So in that case, we're heading towards a fundamental shift in, in the climate that's going to be very – challenging to say the least if at all possible for humans to live um in the future so can you just talk a bit more about this kind of idea of hothouse earth and the hothouse pathway and what the science is saying there it's definitely not a household term <laughs> to use that's no. for sure so i think understanding what tipping points are are helpful for then understanding what the hothouse pathway is so scientists refer to a cascade of tipping points that will be triggered at a certain level of warming. And that may be 1.5 or 2 degrees. Uh, there's a range in which we think that could occur. The domino of tipping points could include things like we know about the melting of the Arctic and there's melting of permafrost. Then there's collapsed ecosystems like the Amazon or Burrell or other ecosystems. A number of in Australia today uh, um, beginning to collapse as well. These feed onto each other and and create um, create a, a feedback cycle. Uh, and this, the fear is that this will create um, a runaway climate change that humans are unable to uh, stop. Um, 
So the in terms of where this point is, um, how close we are to this point, there are reports saying that it's literally impossible now to prevent 1.5 degrees of warming even if we stopped emissions today. You know, there's debate about what point that may be, but we're on the cusp of this point. And so it's time to start grappling with what it may mean if we go past it. Beyond that point, science, Earth system scientists say we're shifting the Earth system into a whole new different state. So this is where the hothouse pathway comes in. Uh, in the last 12,000 years, we've been living in a state called the Holocene, where there's been quite uncharacteristically stable climates, perfect for agricultural development. Uh, um, there's been many Earth states within the geological timeline of Earth. We're about to shift into one that is driven, um, the catalyst is capitalism, and we're ref we refer to that as the hothouse pathway. Yeah. Mm. And is the main thing about the next um, state of the Earth the fact that it's hot, or is that just a sort of summary term that seem, it seems most um, apt to describe it? Is the main issue it's going to be fucking boiling? There, there's a number of crises that that creates. Right? The entire biosphere has evolved around certain climatic conditions. And so as the earth warms, the ent entirety of weather patterns and ecosystems on which society is dependent on uh, will collapse or transform and therefore the foundation of society itself um, will have a big challenge trying to adapt to that. And then the politics of that society will be a huge determinant of that. Mm -hmm. So um, Earth system scientists have largely drawn the conclusion that it may be uh, no, no amount of human intervention could uh, prevent this shift. Uh, and then the, I suppose the, discussion is all right, with all these changes is that adaptation possible but also what i would like to challenge is the idea that um it is an irreversible shift as well because there's a good case to make that <laughs> there'll be a, at some point adaptation is pretty precarious the chances of it yeah so this is pretty universally accepted um science in terms of we're pretty much at the tipping points. The tipping, the domino effect is on its way. In terms of the mainstream environmental movement's response to this challenge, which is monumental, what kind of solutions are on the table? I mean, we know about some of them, but what are the ones in terms of the people who are deep in these discussions? The, saying that the tipping points are inevitable is pretty controversial on the environmental left. Uh, there, I would call it some a level of denialism and right. in that sense as well. Uh, and, you know, it's true that there has been, like the motivation to prevent it has been a driving force of social movements today. But I think the trap is for the environmental left is that they fall into a fatalism beyond the tipping points. Uh, and rest on just the urgency of trying to prevent them. 
so this expresses itself in different ways. So um, Green New Deal advocates and the school strike movement shape their politics around the political horizon, preventing the tipping points and cite social catastrophe as a, the rationale. Then there are um, there are more alarmists. So uh, Extinction Rebellion leader Roger Hallam just blatantly says, beyond the tipping points, I'm going to paraphrase here, but let's be clear what it means. It means the slow suffering death of billions of people. It's a paraphrase, but it's pretty, mm-hmm. it, it captures the, um, the common belief amongst Extinction Rebellion people as to what the consequences are. Uh, coupled with that is uh, a belief that reforming the nation state is key to solving the climate crisis. And it, it's true that reform is really important. We want to slow down the warming, we want to fight for social adaptation, and this is the main fight today. So like the climate strikes, these have been great and should continue to be supported. But reform is not enough. I think uh, Greta, something Greta Thunberg really makes this, what she says makes this clear, that we can't rely on the elites and the system that is destroying the world to change it. We can only rely on ourselves and we need system change to do that. Um, ironically, the Earth System scientists and their papers, uh, that they call part of the solution they call for is for an internationalist, rational, and equitable system where we have a sustainable relationship with, uh, with our planet and all the ecological systems within it. And like these are many features that we call socialism, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they call on the UN to set up some global body to try to create some rational, humane, equitable um, mm. system. But the reality is to realise what they say is the solution is we need to fight. Yes, we need to fight for, for reform today, but ultimately we need to fight for revolution to achieve that. Our across the world. Even then, I guess talking about what the environmental left wants to achieve is one thing, but they're nowhere near achieving any of those things anyway. I mean, the efforts of Extinction Rebellion, of the global climate strike movement, Greta Thunberg, like, They've had an impact in raising people's awareness of the challenges, but in a way, um, you know, business continues as usual. Capitalism continues as usual. I think the pandemic has probably, uh, in some ways, just reinforced the current relations of, of power in society. And so then you have to ask, well, is there any chance, and people do ask this, um, that capitalism itself can somehow find a way to make a profit out of greening things, you know, like renewable energy becomes much more um, desirable for the capitalist class or that they sort of see their own extinction and decide to do something more radical, carbon capture, the technology that might be available. Like is any of that um, realistic? Well, all right, let's let's dive into this rabbit hole. It's 
it's a it's a big one. And like within these technologies, you can see glimpses of the kind of solutions that are necessary to solve the crisis. The question is more what system and what priorities of that system is um, executing it. So there, are, uh, capitalism has this multi-layered plans, I think, to try to solve the crisis. The one is what we're seeing right now, which is just do nothing and continue to expand fossil fuel industry, which is, will, you know, which will lead to disaster. But the, there's more far, far-sighted institutions that look to, um, you know, a more a deeper solution than just to continue on as normal. That they can be found in the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change reports, and the 2018 report is really interesting um, in that manner. Uh, so, I think before, and they're quite they're quite uh, significant. But before you get there, you've got to realize how significant the crisis is. That based on even the Paris Agreement. Um, climate targets, which <laughs> would be better than what is happening now. Um, if you include tipping points into the warming, we could be looking at three degrees of warming by 2050 and five degrees by 2100. Uh, Mark Linus, who's a British environmentalist in a, a recent book that he wrote, makes the case that social adaptation for the vast majority would be increasingly precarious once you get to four or five degrees. Um, you've got vast areas of the globe that the heat is either biologically uninhabitable or so deadly that, you know, we're looking at Sahara Desert kind of deadliness for in regions that billions of people live in today. And then where agriculture is possible to be developed is just exists in high altitude niches or close to poles. He makes the case increasingly society would be dependent on um, artificial environments for agriculture and uh, for uh, society, just for their habitation. That's the, that's the risk that then leads the, the IPCC report into quite significant geoengineering projects. So, and we're talking that, sorry, just yeah. that's all in our lifetime. I know that was a lot to just <laughs> say quickly to get into geoengineering. Yes, that possibly. Uh, it's hard, there are, there's uncertainty ranges and um, it depends on what factors you include into climate modeling to draw these conclusions. But uh, there are a number of reports that, make the case that we could likely see three degrees of forming by 2050, which some reports suggest that would already leave billions of people in where they live today in zones with deadly mm. climate conditions akin to the Sahara Desert. The five degrees is possible by 2100, and that's when where you have Mark Linus saying, well, hang on, social adaptation is pretty precarious in that. Scenario. So, yeah, we're looking at our lifetime for so, some of these yeah. scenarios. So, the capitalists read this book and they're like, oh, shit. Um, can we put a shield up to block the sun or something? Or, you know, like, what's Elon Musk going to do? Mm -hmm. Live, Go and live on the moon. Um, but this people do seem to think that this geoengineering stuff 
um, like maybe there's some technological solution, right? Yeah. And I think there is as well. Uh, but to some of them are pretty distasteful. So you've got to, it's kind of an unfortunate scenario that we're even discussing them. The, fir- mm. the first one is, all right, so not only do we need to cut emissions to zero, but the IPCC report accepts that that's not going to be enough, that we need to withdraw a vast amount of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so how do we do that? The one technology that this report rests on is bioenergy and carbon capture storage, which don't have to get your head around that mouthful. It's referred to as BECS, which is a technology that involves growing vast plantations of trees, cutting them down, using it as an energy source, and then putting the carbon deep underground. So it's, it's a way of just drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. The, the report says that we would need equivalent to, to with a bit of rounding here, about 20 to uh, 30 to 50 percent of arable land on earth would be needed for plantations in order to withdraw enough carbon. And that's based on the situation today. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why under capitalism this would be devastating. Uh, where would governments find this land, right? Uh, like today, governments look to for forests, for <laughs> the vacant land, and our ecosystems, many of them like the Amazon forest is on the brink of collapse due to logging and climate change. So expanding into forests could actually make the climate crisis worse. There's um, the second issue is that the report relies on well, it assumes that warming will only live, will only be up to 1.5 degrees. And we're seeing around us that ecosystems are eroding in this century. Many are at risk of collapsing. So technologies that involve growing your ecosystems may not actually be viable if, um, if the world continues to warm at the pace that it is. Um, that's, that's not to say that planting trees and stuff could not be part of the solution. So that... There's a, a number of technologies like afforestation, soil sequestration, and that uh, support biodiversity and the growth of forests that could probably be part of the solution to withdraw enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The, the question is, um, well, there's a couple of issues. One, just how it's implemented, but also there's the question of, of time that uh, warming will make these uh, these technologies increasingly um, reliant on other forms of geoengineering to f- support them, which comes to what you mentioned, Roz, the question of um, engineering our, our atmosphere, which I can get, go into next because I think that's one that scientists are increasingly saying may be inevitable, and they say that with a sour taste in their mouth. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. And I guess, I mean, one of the things in order to understand all of these challenges is partly as well to go back to the fundamental thing that socialists start with is how you understand capitalism and how you understand the system that 
is based on the production of commodities for profits, of competition and exploitation of the mass of people who, who work to sustain themselves and have to buy these commodities to sustain themselves. Um, and that there's the short-term need to accumulate um, surplus value, to accumulate profit amongst the capitalist class means that it's like they can see these things coming, but they literally can't make a longer-term plan because they need to do the continual short-term exploitation to get the next bit of profit to expand and um, all of that. So in a way, they they know that it, it has to be some fundamental change either has to happen to the structures of society, which they're not going to um, promote, or they're getting ready for some kind of dystopian future. And the only thing that they're really concerned about is how they'll protect themselves from, you know, an unimaginable kind of crisis situation. And that means what technology can you use to live in a bunker and build a better border for all the climate refugees to be blocked by. And and I think then that infects, you know, the environmental movement to, to have that kind of dystopian vision too and sort of fall either into like, you know, throw yourselves into the road kind of thing, Extinction Rebellion style, literally, or I'm just going to try to delude myself that some tiny policy change is going to contribute in some way that will end up being enough. You know, it's like catastrophe or delusional reformism. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, what's the alternative uh, to all of that? Do you think that's a fair kind of summary? Yeah, I do. But relationship that society has over nature needs to be completely transformed right so it's society is just tra- uh, nature is just treated like a commodity uh and even to this day despite the gravity of the situation we're in we see governments and private capital just continue to log and destroy nature when the reverse needs to happen uh and that transformation of our relationship with nature the first step to achieve that is to transform nature and society itself. I, mm. I agree with that. And part, like it's not just like environmentalists just see that as we just need to reform the nation state, right? To, to somehow uh, realize the views of environmentalists, but we live in a competitive world where nation states compete against each other and that drives this competitive exploitation of nature and the working class as well Uh, and that needs to be challenged as well Uh, so it needs to be an internationalist solution uh, which is something that socialists always say can i say a couple of things on solar radiation management like we want we've got to go down there because it's I think part of this topic is showing that there are solutions that, yeah, we need, we need revolutionary politics, but like the technical solutions exist. And one way that uh, we can give us time to withdraw the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is potentially with 
hopefully we don't need to use this technology, but it's potentially with a technology called solar radi- radiation management. Now, uh, it depends on who uses it, right? So I think that if it was implemented by governments, many governments are researching this technology right now. Uh, it could be, um, you know, the uh, effects of it would be very different. So the technology's aim is to uh, put a layer of aerosols on the stratosphere that reflects uh, radiation from the sun, so less heat goes into Earth. It could reduce the warming on Earth and it could stabilise temperatures, which would give humanity time to withdraw carbon dioxide to a, a safe range. And eventually then you would wean off the, the, this solar engineering and get to a point where you would stabilise a habitable Earth system. Though it is a high-risk technology, early modelling suggests that if it's implemented poorly, you know, monsoon rains in India or um, Southeast Asia or Africa could disappear, right? And you, in a competitive world with rival nation states, you can see how things could go wrong. But... Um, in a world where you've got an internationally united rational system, it could potentially be used um, in a way that could help. Because who owns the atmosphere? Like mm. yeah. <laughs> in capitalism, that's that would be the first question, wouldn't it? Like who controls which bits of the atmosphere? It's sort of yeah, incredible. But and on the other hand, the technology, Liam, you were going to say something. Well, yeah, because I'm just think, I'm just sitting here listening to this, this discussion and, and thinking, thinking about thinking of sci-fi films you've watched. <laughs> I wasn't actually, I wasn't, but now I am. Um, no, I just the the sort of scale. I mean, if you step back and take it, you know, take a deep breath and, and just think about what what we're talking about here. You know, massive schemes to put chemicals in the upper stratosphere that would reflect the sun, and you know that that would impact monsoons in different continents and so on, or you know whole swathes of the earth that need to be replanted with forests. And like, these are big, huge kind of global shifts in the whole way that the world would be sort of organized. And yet it, you know, it just, I just, just an observation that people can talk about solutions on that scale, but the idea that, you know, human beings might actually intervene to change the structure of society through a revolutionary process is somehow and not even on the table, you know, like that's too hard to imagine. Like that's somehow harder to imagine for people than the idea that you can have, you know, chemicals that block the sun all over the world. Do you know what I mean? Like I just, there's mm-hmm. something here that the kind of, the missing ingredient in all of this, I think, is is that idea that, that human beings can intervene consciously to shape society. And that if, once that's off the table, or if that's not on your table to start with, um, then, you know, all these other massive schemes can sort of seem possible but the idea that i guess what i'm thinking of is like there's a there's a comment i can't remember who said this but um uh you you two might remember about this thing that it's easier for humanity to it's easier for people to envision the end of humanity than it is to envision the idea that we might save ourselves you know what i mean like there can be that sort of dynamic i think do you know what i'm saying yeah yeah and and like the social forces required to have an international project to use that technology in a way that's you know, equitable and beneficial for everyone. Like that requires the first step of revolutionary change in the way that uh, the world operates. Um, 
Like it's impossible to imagine it being used in a way that doesn't have a whole heap of negative impacts or even getting up at all, you know, like, you know, um, all of the development of space technology and stuff, which I'm sure there's people who could come on and tell us why that's actually useful for humanity, but it's never going to be useful for humanity because it's never been done in a way that is aimed at being useful for humanity. It's aimed at winning the cold war or, um, being the biggest imperialist power or, um, you know, for some own, some national interests of some capitalist class somewhere. So that same political point undermines, uh, underpins, or potentially undermines or underpins, depending on what happens, the same prospect. I, I think, yeah, I really agree. And I think that uh, helps us determine what we say about these kinds of technologies as well. Because there's a lot of hostility on the environmental left for good reason of it. And I think we should also be against the use of it. Like you can imagine new era of climate imperialism outbreaking where nation states are fighting over atmospheric water to, um, to you know, try to stabilise their social unrest or whatever in their countries. But at the same time, there's a paradox because we also possibly need this technology to solve the climate crisis. But the first step is to see that we need, we need social, vast social change to create a society that can use it in such a way to realise this, like a, a rational use of this science. And that's something that is often missed from the equation, that actually there, we, it is possible to, um, you know, a solution is possible, but we need to realise it or view um, the possibility of radical social change in order to see that. So let's go back to something you said earlier about the science around the tipping points and the hothouse pathway, because this is a big question and this is controversial um, that you argue or that you've started to think about the possibility of um, this not being some irreversible change to the Earth's habitability. Why do you think that there is some reason to think that that might not be the case? Um, well, the, the first step is even just with the technologies that we have today, right, the way we're talking about, the ones that we've spoken about, you could see that a different type of society could use it in a in a way that could potentially solve the crisis. And that's, even on that level, that's something that hasn't really been discussed. Mm. But beyond that, I think there's a, we can easily see science as this static thing, but I think also at through social change, we could see a real possibility for revolution in the sciences needed to solve the crisis as, as well. So sciences, the science is critical of solving the crisis, whether it be earth system science or uh, geology, the science of <laughs> growing ecosystems to withdraw CO2 or geoengineering. They're, 
they're in their infancy, so they don't receive much funding. Uh, and it's partially because the system doesn't see it as profitable or seeing these technologies as useful for war, which seems crazy, right, that they're so underfunded given their, their role. Country after country, science funding goes to military needs and narrow interests of profitable investments, and that's, that's it. Um, so whether it's like in every single science field, imagine if they could free themselves from the profit motive and look into these sciences. One, um, like I, I looked into just how undeveloped some of these sciences are and it was pretty striking. So to use the example of ecology, you know, capitalism's good at extinction, right? It's good at slaughtering uh, forests. But it, what I found amazing was two-thirds of species on Earth we don't know, and out of the third that we do know, one in a thousand uh, have been researched. But the, our knowledge of these species will increase um, our capacity to do a range of things. So um, it could help us increase our ability to engineer ecosystems that could adapt to changing climates to increase our food production, but significantly for the crisis, increase the pace of carbon dioxide removal, even in potentially hostile conditions. We don't know the potential of that, or even in the other sciences, what technologies we could innovate to um, remove CO2. Like there's a host of incredible ideas out there Mm. that we haven't mentioned, but we don't know their potential because there's no funding going their way. Um, and it's and it's because of capitalism's priorities uh, mm. that that's the case. Yeah, that is incredible what we don't know <laughs> in terms of the natural world, but also about human beings, I think, as well. You could add to that. We don't know. We know hardly anything about the human brain and the limitations that, capitalism has put on the development of the human brain just to be you know narrowly uh about the functions of the system in the way that it works so even that the the liberation of the human brain in and of itself would be a mass could be a massive uh, transformative thing to be able to come up with solutions let alone understanding the natural world and the potential of technology which like all of that stuff gives I think is a good reason for hope. And that thing about the species, you know, that made me think of, um, I was listening to Radio National and it was this guy who was retiring a scientist, an Australian scientist who had, I think, 200 different types of dung beetles that were named after him or that he got to name because he was the one who discovered them all because there are so many different types of beetles that no one is that interested in. There's no funding to research, so he just kind of did it. And so he named 200 different species because, and there's still, he's like, there's still heaps more that now I've retired. I mean, who knows? Probably no one will ever name them. There's a, a socialist in um, Melbourne, Jemima, who's a scientist, and she <laughs> she just casually said, oh, yeah, I've, I've discovered a species uh, just, you know, casually because <laughs> these things just happen for scientists. There is just so much in the world to discover and people stumble upon it. 
this stuff during mm. their research. Yeah. So if we think about, have we got examples from history around um, the potential for this kind of leaps and bounds of scientific innovation when there is changes to the way that society operates? Uh Yes, I think we've got small snippets of it. Uh, and we're talking about workers' revolution as being the solution, right, which may seem far-fetched, but I think it's, considering the period that we're finding ourselves going into, it's less so that we can see waves and waves of profound crisis ahead of us. Um, social crisis created through... Um, the environmental crisis and and they're possibly far deeper than the crisis that led to workers revolutions after world war one that we're we're heading into and like already today we see workers uprisings right from belarus to myanmar we may see plenty more in the future um what do they tell us well one during the Russian Revolution, uh, when workers finally got control over their labour and got to think about what they could uh, do to start transforming the world, there were a number of scientific breakthroughs that uh, um, occurred. Even during, you know, the war, economic siege, and all the challenges that uh, the revolution was going through at the time, um, there were advances in. Well, Earth system science arguably one of the it, it arguably emerged in that time uh, uh, by a scientist, and there were big breakthroughs in um, our understanding of ecology as well. That the, the first seed bank was created, but the guy who led to that um, he also discovered biological hotspots and was determined to understand our ecosystems in order to. Um, prevent future starvation and the workers councils and services at the time put resources and supported um scientists to pursue um sciences like that but we can even look at australia to see glimpses of what could be possible as well so in the 70s the um number of communists in the construction industry I took over their union and started democratically deciding what was environmentally worthwhile and what wasn't for construction projects. And you could imagine uh, with the climate crisis, similar things happening that our workers finally get to say about what they do with their trades, um, how they can reinvent them to start to um, solve the crisis itself. Yeah. And that example, yeah, of the the green the green bands in the Builders Labor's Federation, I think it's a good one. But the Russian Revolution stuff is incredible when you think about over a hundred years ago now that some of the things that they were starting to think about are what is currently on the agenda for the left of the environment movement, as if it's a new um, set of ideas. So I think that's definitely worth people. Um, exploring more detail and maybe we can find some links to put up uh, for that so okay um let's finish with the big question about uh well if we're all organizing for revolution we're not doing much actually to solve some of the immediate questions about the environment so 
we don't really have time to organize a workers' revolution if we want to tackle what are the immediate, you know, uh, weather events, bushfires, all of the stuff that could we could have some impact on now. Um, the environmental movement says let's start to reform some things now, and we say, no, we need a revolution. Uh, how do you respond to to that apparent um, contradiction? Well, yeah, it's crazy. But there's a num one part of that argument is that uh, some people on the left say we don't have time for revolution as well, uh, which is uh, a crazy idea. I think one one. Um, immediate response is we don't have time not to fight for a revolution but fighting for that and fighting for socialism is not about waiting uh, so yes we want to build a revolutionary movement uh, a wing amongst the environmental movement today but this would only strengthen our fight for reform today as well uh, that the kinds of strategies we look to are the ones that would be needed to actually win the far-reaching reforms that um, people that advocate for reformism are trying to achieve. Even uh, even re transitions for renewable energy is not going to come lightly. Like there's infrastructures carbonized, and there's tens and tens of trillions of dollars invested in it. Capitalists want to see their returns. We need. Like we need a strategy that looks to working class action, to strike action, to challenge the actual power of who controls um, the economy. And revolutionaries have got um, a strategy for fighting for these reforms that I think um, are necessary. Mass movements are good. We should support them, but we need to push for more than that as well. Um, I think that's part of the answer. Mm. There's, I'm just was thinking about the, because you mentioned the bushfires for a second there, Ros, too. And, um, you know, if you think back to that period over 12 months ago where Australia was experiencing, you know, the worst bushfires on record, the climate fires, you know, climate crisis fires. Um, at the time, we, for Red Flag Radio, interviewed uh, some of the socialists who had been organising um, in, you know, the, the protests in the cities, particularly here in Melbourne against the fires. And it's worth remembering the dynamic that unfolded there uh, where the, you know, the most left-wing state government in Australia, the Andrews government, uh, and all of the kind of, you know, small left, small left kind of liberal mainstream media like The Age and the ABC uh, just railed against the, those protests. You know, the idea that you would protest against uh, this catastrophic climate change induced crisis fire that was engulfing half the country, um, uh, you know, was, was a scandal to, the, to the, all of these institutions. And I think that that's kind of microcosm of what we're seeing as well, that the, that the, unless you're prepared, unless you understand the role of the state and the mainstream media and all of these forces in backing up the status quo, the profit-driven capitalist system, uh, unless you understand that and are prepared to pit yourself against it, well, then actually you, you kind of, you're kind of flat-footed, you know, because the reality is as soon as you move into the sort of action that can start to, even on that small scale, post some kind of alternative or demand some kind of alternative, uh, you're up against the forces of the state 
even in this situation where it was, you know, the most left-wing government in Australia. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for the importance of having a kind of, you know, a radical set of politics that's prepared to defy uh, all of those institutions and the government and sheet the, home blame, sheet the blame home to them uh, and that looks to mass protest, uh, you know, on the streets as, as a central part of the solution. Irrespective of all of the kind of technological stuff that we've been discussing today, I think that kind of basic political dynamic still still is is important to grasp. Um, that you know you are not like even even this talk of reforms is not going to happen unless you've got mm. radicals in there who are prepared to fight for it. I guess that's what I'm saying. And to have a confrontational approach. Yeah, yeah, because the capitalist class are going to hold try to hold on to their their own solutions, um, their own power and wealth and all of that. It's none of it is given up without a fight. That's the lesson. That's one of the lessons from every single episode, yeah. probably of of this podcast. If you've listened to them all, uh, you'll be like, "Oh, there's some really key themes here." Um, and that's if you don't fight, you lose. And yeah, so we're talking about a world to win in a way that is incredibly serious. But Jamil, what would you say just to finish? Well, one thing that Greta, Greta Thunberg says, which I think is really true, is there is no hope without action, so we need we need people s- struggling, trying to push for social change, and that's where hope lies. I think that's the, the starting point, and everything like the argument flows on from there. That the reason why there's uh, hopelessness amongst scientists and the environmental movement is because of their limited political scope. That they see that possibility stuck within the capitalist system itself. And the lack of a revolutionary alternative to that as well. And so we need we need revolutionary hope to break out of that. Um, and that uh, there is a possibilities for an abundant and a beautiful world to be created even 10, 20, 30 years beyond the tipping point. At least we can't let that uh, possibility just go. But um, to break from the fatalism, we need revolutionary politics. Mm. Well, that's a fantastic way to finish. And if you want to learn more about revolutionary politics, then uh, read Red Flag newspaper and listen to this podcast and engage with the politics. Um, And, of course, um, in every uh, city in Australia, there are discussion groups for people interested in finding out more about Marxist politics, and um, you can find those uh, via the Red Flag newspaper website. And I'll pop the link in for this session because if, um, you know, there's a multiple, there's a huge amount of reasons why people start to get involved in more radical politics. And I think the environment question is uh, increasingly going to be one of those in in the years that come, in the months that come. Um, Jamil, you have... One more thing to say. <laughs> Just quickly, I've, yeah. I've been working with a socialist in Melbourne, Roxanne, on a on a journal article in the Marxist Left Review on this question. So, stay stay tuned for that. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Red Flag newspaper, Red Flag radio podcast, Marxist <laughs> Left Review. Come to socialism in Sydney in September. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you, Jamil, for being on here. Thanks for inviting we me. Hope to have you back again in the future. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. Thanks, Liam Ward. We have a world to win.